Hello, and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bershon. I teach English at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 for a course on narratives across media, looking at different forms of media, and today, looking at the medium of comics. So today's lecture is a sort of bridge point. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the next section of Station Eleven in the course, which is the starship. But before we can get there, we want to jump backwards into the portion of the course called I Prefer You With a Crown to follow up on the second focus point that we were looking at last lecture. We looked at instances of everyday apocalypse, and I said that there was this other focus point, intertextuality with comic books, reminding you that intertextuality is a term popularized by Julia Kristeva, which refers to the multiple ways in which any one literary text, and I think we can extend that to other forms of text. They don't have to be literary texts to be intertextual. We could talk about intermediality, which is when we have the same thing as intertextuality across different mediums, but I want to stick to intertextuality since that that word is used more frequently in English studies, and it encompasses a lot of the same concepts. So in the way, any one literary text, and we've said any one narrative, is in fact made up of other texts or narratives by means of its open or covert citations and allusions. And we have the, I don't want to say covert citation of Station Eleven. There is no comic called Station Eleven, but there is another covert citation going on here, and it's to... Um, it, it, Neil Gaiman's comics, uh, the Sandman comics. Uh, Emily St. John Mandel, when she visited McEwen for our Book of the Year uh, festivities, said that it was Neil Gaiman's uh, brief lives that really struck her and inspired the type of comics that Miranda creates in, uh, in, in Station Eleven. So the Station Eleven comic book is inspired by um, Neil Gaiman's Brief Lives, one of the, the Sandman, ser part of the Sandman series, this long series of, of monthly comics, which have been turned into a number of collected editions, which we often refer to as graphic novels. But you can see here that the art style, or if you're on the, the podcast, I'll describe it for you, the art style between Gaiman's The Sandman and the art style of the tip-in plate that was created for the UK edition of Station Eleven are quite distinct. The The UK tip-in plate has a lot of really clean lines. There's not a lot of detail. Uh, and it's operating with very few colors, which was a way that comics were sometimes printed in the 50s and 60s when they simply didn't have enough money to do the full uh, color print. They would, they would reduce the number of colors that they were using. And... Whereas the Sandman comics, uh, in this particular instance from Brief Lives, uh, there's more detail, there's a higher degree of realism, the colors uh, have greater greater depth. We're nowhere near as deep as some comics are today, or even the ones that seem to be implied by the style that Miranda employs in Station Eleven. She paints her comics. So I, I often, I, I don't really feel like either of these fully encompasses what Station Eleven would look like, and one of my long-term projects as a 
as a prof, but also as just a creative person, is to one day maybe just make a few pages of Station Eleven for kicks. Um, I don't know if that would get me into trouble with all sorts of copyright, but we're we're really riding the crazy copyright wave today because I've got pages from Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes, and so who knows, maybe this YouTube video is going to get dragged down. I, I beg of you, whomever you are who come here looking and going, hey, is that ours, and are you using it for... I'm not getting a whole ton of monetary gain from this. I get no extra money from these YouTube videos. This is just me teaching, so please leave it alone. Um, but we've got this style, I think is what I would say, uh, for, um, for what Miranda is doing in Station Eleven. And I just sort of add that as a, as a, so we know what the covert citation is here. And that's not something that you would be able to ascertain by reading Station Eleven, although you'd, I think, certainly be able to recognize it if you were to take a look at that tip-in plate and then look at the way that Miranda's uh, art is described by Emily St. John Mandel and go, mm, I don't think that really matches up. That doesn't feel quite right to me. Uh, it's, 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 it, you, would, you might notice that distinctiveness. But I don't want to just sort of sit with covert uh, intertextual references. This is sort of almost like a form of trivia, but rather I want to move on to understanding what we mean by the form comics. So comics is an art form. Comics are an art form. Might be a better way to say that. But it, it, it is an art form. What's the difference between a comic book and a graphic novel? I, I regularly, you know, find out that somebody's teenager somebody will say oh you teach what do you teach and i tell them what i teach and i say oh, i do some stuff with comic books and they're like oh, my whatever their child is reads comic books or they don't say that they should but reads we reads comic books and then the child they say reads comic books and the child jumps in at this point usually 15 16 17 years old and says graphic novels dad or mom graphic novels and that pretty much sums out how the the term graphic novels is employed by the majority of people in North America. When I run into people who are like, uh, I'll say, oh, I, I teach comic books. And they'll say, is that the same thing as gra graphic novels? Because I read graphic novels. I don't read comics. Yeah, you do. You read graphic novels, you read comics. Comics is the art form. Comic books is a form of comics. Graphic novels, a form of comics. But they're both comics. And so when I say comic books, I think of it as a much more encompassing thing. But there is a distinction that we can draw between comic books and graphic novels. The series The Walking Dead, even though we get it in collected editions like the one that we're using for this course, we get volume one. And people call that a graphic novel, but that's not quite true. Um, because The Walking Dead was originally published as a periodic series produced in the comics medium. A periodic series produced in the comics medium. The stories in a comic book are released episodically and can continue indefinitely, just like a TV series. If they keep getting renewed, if the, if the people who are publishing that comic are making money off of it, they're going to keep publishing it. And this is the way that comics were traditionally published from way back in the 1930s all the way up to today. Comics are published as periodic series produced in the comics medium. So you see there, the comics medium, that, the, that comics is the art form. The stories in a comic book are released episodically, and that's how The Walking Dead was originally released, just like the television series in some respects. Um, and so it's not really a graphic novel at that point, although we might argue that once it's been collected, it sort of works like a graphic novel, a really long one. Um, but most 
comic books that are released periodically aren't thinking let's let's have an end game here that was something that was introduced by independent comic writers largely in the 1980s a canadian comic book uh writer in particular writer artist named dave sim who was doing a series called cerebus which was a spoof of conan the barbarian initially and then it became something else and he said we're gonna go 300 issues and i'm gonna kill the character at the end and that was sort of unheard of because you didn't kill characters. You could kill characters. You could kill Superman, but you're going to bring Superman back. You kill Wolverine, but you'll bring Wolverine back. Whoever you kill, you bring them back because if they make you money, <laughs> you bring them back. Or you clothe them in, you know, new uh, new forms. You know, uh, Thor becomes a woman. Um, heroes, you know, uh, adapt. They, somebody else puts on the costume, that kind of thing. Um, but a graphic novel proper is more like what we see with a book like V for Vendetta, which I include here because it's a legit dystopic work. I want us to remember that term dystopia, dystopic works that we've been sort of batting around a little bit. And I haven't quite come to ask the question, do you think Station Eleven is a dystopic work? Like like uh, Patrick DeWitt says on the back, right? A genuinely unsettling dystopian novel. Is this really a dystopian? dystopian novel v for vendetta sure is it's a dystopian graphic novel what's a graphic novel it refers to a standalone long-form narrative produced in the comics medium so again we've got the same medium but there's just a difference in the way that it's being published a graphic novel is in the writer's mind it has a, a start and it has a finish and i am not 100 percent sure if the you know the creative team responsible for the walking dead knew where they were going when they started i would need to do research on that i i'm i'm unaware um but i know v for vendetta alan moore absolutely knew what he was going to end on he's like okay this this is this is the storyline this is the arc and uh you know when it gets collected into an edition you don't get 15 volumes of it you just get one v for vendetta um so that's really technically what we mean when we mean graphic novel so we want to make sure we have our terms down and then we've got the comic strip and the comic strip's a bit of a a dinosaur now um because newspapers are a bit of a dinosaur uh, not a lot of people subscribe to their local papers and so i don't know how many of you read comic strips if we read comic strips now we probably read them on the web right like nathan pyle's strange planet on say instagram or something like that but once upon a time the comic strip was released daily in your local newspaper they were syndicated they were distributed by those newspapers so someone would come up with a comic strip idea and it could be published nationally it might be published somewhat locally uh it could be published internationally and calvin and hobbs was one of those comic strips that was once it broke was in every paper if they could afford it because you always had to pay for those things and you had black and white strips that would appear in the daily news and then there was a special insert that came on the weekends. And way back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that insert was like a magazine. It was like a magazine inside your newspaper that had all these color strips. It, it was, it, not, you know, I say magazine. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying it looked like time. But that it was a, it was a thing unto itself. 
And I've never held one in my hands, but I've read lots of um, stuff on on comics back in the day and people who read comics in that period. And they said that they would just so look forward to what was called the Sunday Funnies, the Sunday Funnies. They'd be released on the weekend in some newspapers Saturday and some newspapers Sunday, depending, depending on whether or not that newspaper published on Sunday. So Sunday Funnies had comic strips and they were full color. And Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, has been celebrated as a writer-artist who reinvented the medium, who made the comic strip exciting again in a way that it hadn't been in a very long time. Things had kind of gotten stale in the comic strip, and you had a lot of comic strips that had been around for a very long time. And those writer-artists were just phoning it in most days, the same old jokes over and over and over again. And along came Calvin and Hobbes and reinvigorated the medium. Now, there'd been other people who had done that in the early 80s, but uh, nobody like Watterson. Nobody did it like Watterson at the level that Watterson did. Um, And we get this reference to Calvin and Hobbes in Station Eleven. So we had a covert reference to Gaiman's... uh, Sandman comics, we get an overt reference um, in Station Eleven when uh, Miranda is saying what she's doing with her Station Eleven books, and they start talking about Calvin and Hobbes. What made you choose that form? Arthur asks her. He seems genuinely interested. I used to read a lot of comics when I was a kid. Did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? Arthur is watching her closely. He looks young, she thinks, for 36 He looks only slightly older than he did when they met for lunch seven years ago. Sure, Arthur says. I loved Calvin and Hobbes. My best friend had a stack of the books when we were growing up. Is your friend from the island? Maybe I knew him. Her. Victoria. She picked up and moved to Tofino 15 years ago. But you were telling me about Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, right. Do you remember Spaceman Spiff? She loved those panels especially. Spiff's flying saucer, crossing alien skies, the little astronaut in his goggles under the saucer's glass dome. Often it was funny, but it was, but also it was beautiful. She tells him about coming back to Delano Island for Christmas in her first year of art school after a semester marked by failure and frustrating attempts at photography. She started thumbing through an old Calvin and Hobbes and thought, This. These red desert landscapes. These skies with two moons. She began thinking about the possibilities of the form, comics form, about spaceships and stars, alien planets, but a year passed before she invented the beautiful wreckage of Station Eleven. Arthur watches her across the table. Dinner goes very late. And we talked last week, if you're interested, if this is your first time uh, with the podcast or it's your first time here at the YouTube channel and you're like, what's this? What's going on? What's this book? Station Eleven. Pick it up. Check out the uh, the other episodes in the series. Um, but the comic strip is what Miranda is talking about. And she's talking about the beauty of the form of these lonely vistas that I think that this particular strip shows. Where We're right in the middle of all these panels. We've got this really long horizontal panel uh, with this desert landscape in the background. And there's Calvin as Spaceman Spiff. So very, very tiny. Um, and we might say, well, you know, what, what is this panel all about? How do we read what's going on here in this moment of what Will Eisner called, of the comics medium, sequential 
art, where we have, unlike other forms, so, you know, a novel is all text, and a movie is largely image, and a comic is a combination of text and image in a meaningful sequence. So what's, what's the meaningful sequence to this particular strip? Well, it begins with, with Calvin uh, as Spiff in, in his imagination. He always imagines these things. If you've ever read Calvin and Hobbes before, all of this takes place in Calvin's imagination. This little boy. The spirit, fearless spaceman Spiff, interplanetary explorer extraordinaire, gazes across the forbidding landscape of an uncharted planet. What dangers lie ahead for our hero? What horrible aliens inhabit this world? And he gets out and he starts walking around. And there's there's this panel within a panel, and the smaller panel there is 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 Calvin talking. The larger panel that it sits inside is him just walking all by himself, completely lonely. Great big vista in the background. Tiny little spaceman spit. Reading comics is a little bit like reading film. We take a look at the way that the shot has been constructed, the way that it's organized, the composition of the frame. And by the way, the language is the same. Comics frame is what we have for these squares. And the white space between is called the gutter. But the frame, what's in the frame? What do I see in the frame? And when we would read this the first time, we'd just be reading it for our amusement. But Station Eleven sort of points us in the direction of saying, hey, maybe you should take a closer look because Miranda seems to consider this art. And so do I. And so do people who are very serious about comics. They consider comics art. And if it really is art, then you're going to have great artists. You're going to have eh, artists and the eh, artists, they just draw pictures that are sequential and they tell stories and they're good. But then you have great artists like Bill Watterson. Bill Watterson did things, as I've already said, with the form that were innovative. What, what were some of those things? Well, just moving away from a very standard this many squares for the, you know, the, the joke, whatever the joke was, and they'd all be the same size and they certainly wouldn't intersect with each other. And they certainly wouldn't sit inside each other. We've got frames nesting inside other frames here. And you might say, well, uh, is that really that innovative? Yes. As it turns out, it is because we're getting Smith's dialogue juxtaposed very clearly with this great big empty vista. What strange adventures await the intrepid Spiff? What bizarre occurrence will our hero be the first to witness? And we know from the panel, nothing. So he goes from that, that panel within a panel to the great big horizontal one that runs as far as, the, as both sides of the page with tiny little spaceman Spiff in the middle. The suspense is the next panel right? Our hero chucks a few rocks and there he's very tiny looking over a huge cliff and throwing rocks way down into a great abyss of this empty planet. And then finally, colored blue. <laughs> he's blue. He's literally blue. Couldn't be more on the nose. Calvin sighs. Sigh. It's sad, right? So sad for Calvin to be all by himself. And that's really what this comic is from start to finish is loneliness. He's lonely on this great big planet. The loneliness that, that Miranda sort of uh, refers to, that, 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 that citation, right? And what does Calvin do? He goes into the house and he finds, he finds Hobbes. I never read Calvin and Hobbes before. Hobbes is Calvin's best friend. It's his stuffed tiger who really is just a figment of his imagination. But Lord knows for those of us who read all of Calvin and Hobbes that we just can't quite think of Hobbes that way. Hobbes, we will admit readily that Hobbes is just a figment of uh, 
Calvin's imagination, but we don't really want to say that because it doesn't feel right. Because he he certainly is Im- rendered as his own uh, character. And there's all sorts of things we could say about what Hobbes represents, but you'd have to read all of Calvin and Hobbes to do that. And so just to stay on track, we know that that Hobbes, the tiger, is Calvin's best friend. So Calvin goes in the house, he gets Hobbes, and that last panel, you'll notice, has no border. This is the unframed panel. We have gone for the entire strip with borders to each panel. There is no border here. You cannot tell me that that wasn't intentional on Watterson's part. Because if he was going to do something with borderless, wouldn't it have been, wouldn't it made more sense to use that, that horizontal vista, that huge horizontal vista? He could have done some more beautiful art, but he doesn't. And in that final panel, if you couldn't find any weirdness, says Hobbes, maybe we'll just have to make some. Now you're talking. Nothing like being with your best buddy, your best friend. And suddenly there are no boundaries. There are no borders. There's just wide open potential at the end of the strip. So that's a way of me reading a comic strip, really, really reading it. Now, I can read it just for fun. I can read it for entertainment. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to make this absolutely clear to y'all. Film, novels, I don't care what the medium is. We can just enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it. We can just feel the emotional rush that comes from a good gag. We're going to see how that works in just a second. We don't have to analyze everything. And not everything has to have some deeper meaning to be of value. Calvin and Hobbes was hugely valuable to me as a young teenager, just for the sheer pleasure of reading a great joke with some really, really funny art. That's one of the great legacies of Bill Watterson is that the man could draw goofy facial expressions like no one else. How do we read a comic? What's going on when we read a comic? If we want to go beyond just that initial pleasure of entertainment, which, as I say, is valuable. There's something in and of that that's great and grand. But if I want to read a little deeper, then how do I do it? Well, let's start again with understanding that concept. The map is not the territory through the vocabulary of comics. And here I have a page or two from Scott McCloud's wonderful Understanding Comics. If you're going to read one book about how to read comics, you should pick this one up. It is done in the medium of comics. And as it's, you know, using the medium, it teaches you how to understand the medium. So here we have Scott McCloud drawing himself, talking about how images work the vocabulary of comics. He says, here's a painting by Magritte called The Treachery of Images. The inscription is in French. Translated, it means this is not a pipe. And indeed, this is not a pipe. This is a painting of a pipe, right? Representation, not the thing. Well, actually, that's wrong. This is not a painting of a pipe. This is a drawing of a painting of a pipe. Maps within maps within maps. N'est-ce pas? Nope, wrong again. It's a printed copy of a drawing of a painting of a pipe. Ten copies, actually. Six, if you folded the pages back. So he's, he's talking about the, the fact that this is sequential art, that we have been reading by running our eye from the left side of the page to the panel to the right. 
That's what we, we're still doing a left to right thing as we often do. And everyone does in Western culture. Anyway, there are other cultures that don't read this way. Some cultures read right to left. And there are comics that are read that way as well. Uh, Japanese comics are read in the opposite direction to Western comics. Uh, right down to if you read them on a Kindle, you swipe in the other direction to turn the page. Um, so McLeod's uh, making a joke about uh, the presence of sequential art. That's what that's what comics are. They're sequential art. Do you hear what I'm saying? He says, if you do have your ears checked because no one said a word. Now, clearly in your experience, it did. But this is a different map now entirely. Uh, I'm just referencing. In fact, we just went an extra level, didn't we? He said it's a printed copy of a drawing of a painting of a pipe. And actually, this is a video with a printed copy of a drawing of a painting of a pipe scanned in. So, but there at the end, nothing was really said. If I hadn't spoken it, if you just read it with your eyes, nothing is actually being said. And that's the whole point of this idea of representation. And again, someone might say, well, what difference does that make? Too often, the representations, the maps, the fictions are used like they are the territory, like they are the thing, like they are reality. Comics really announce their artifice. We know we're not looking at a real person when we look at Calvin. We are readily aware that Calvin is not a realistically rendered person. And yet, there are posters of Calvin's facial expressions with, like, what emotion is this, that people have used with uh, usually kids who are having trouble vocalizing what their emotional state is recognizing what anger is or sorrow or any of those things. And they can point to Calvin and whether they're female or not white, they can point and they can say that I recognize that McLeod talks about this in his book, the ability of cartoons to focus our attention on an idea, I think is, I think an important part of their special power, both in comics and in drawing generally. Another is the universality of cartoon imagery. The more cartoony a face, for instance, the more people it could be said to describe. So if you have a perfectly rendered realistic face, most of us will say, that's not me. Like if it doesn't look like you, it's not you. The less detail is given to that face in a comic, the more universal it becomes until finally we can just go with emojis and emojis have a universality to them. We don't look at you. We don't look at emojis and think, well, that's not me because my head's not perfectly spherical. And, you know, we, we go, oh, smiley face. And we, we recognize that as, as our emotional, as our emotional position. I want to just jump back to what McLeod says there about, too, about the ability of cartoons to focus our attention on an idea, the way that the frame locks it all down. You remember that when I was talking about the map not being the territory, initially I said, we don't know anything that happens outside of the frame. Anything that happens outside the frame is mere speculation on our part. There's a horizon of expectation that narrative produces. And in comics, this is rendered through the way that the panels are arranged, the way that these frames are organized. 
And McLeod breaks them down into a number of different movements, movement to movement, action to action, subject to subject, scene to scene. It doesn't matter too much to us except to understand that what we have here is sequential art of particular panels. And if we're going to analyze those, we only ever want to analyze what's actually in the frame. McLeod talks about a concept called closure which I find really, really helpful to understand, not only for reading comics, but for reading fiction and watching movies as well. Comics are made up of those individual boxes called panels or frames. And inside that panel, in this particular instance that McLeod has drawn, we've got a guy attacking someone else with an axe. The attacker says, now you die. The person being attacked shouts, no, no. And then we get the gutter. The gutter is that blank white space or black space or some other kind of space in between the comic panels. And then in the next panel, we have an exterior image of a downtown urban space silhouetted against a night sky with a moon and a scream written across the sky. Uh, we can get into all sorts of diegetic, non-diegetic stuff like we were talking about with film earlier. Um, but if you if you read comics, you know that no one sees a giant E.A. in the sky. That's just, you know, that's the, the moment of exclamation. Who died? Who's screaming? Now, because we saw a guy with an axe attacking another guy with an axe, we say the guy who is being attacked by the axe guy. But we don't know. We're not sure. Maybe the guy who's being attacked grabbed the axe out of axe guy's hand and attacked him. And maybe the third panel would be a surprise panel of this guy looking shocked, holding the axe. I can't believe I struck back and killed him. Or maybe somebody burst through the door at the last section. Se uh, second, not section. Last second. More than likely, though, the axe murderer murdered the person without the axe. And the idea of closure is where we take incomplete information and come to a conclusion. And we do it all the time. If we see half of an image, our brain will extrapolate what the rest of the image looks like. We're actually doing this all the time right now, trying to figure out what people look like behind COVID masks. And um, I met a guy this last year who works at, uh, in the restaurant business, and he said, it's really shocking. Like they come in, they've got the mask on, and you think, I know what this person looks like. They sit down at the table, they take the mask off. Nope, you didn't. You didn't know what they looked like. Something about the rest of the face, completely different from what you assumed. But the brain, pattern recognition animal, the brain wants to fill in the gaps. And we do this all the time with narratives. And comics just illustrate it for us. They show it to us very, very carefully so that we, that we can understand this concept of closure. Now, to further understand this concept of closure, I want us to take a look at a few pages that Bill Watterson created for a collection of Calvin and Hobbes comics. So this one was never published as a comic strip. In fact, instead, this one works more like a comic book. So it starts with this panel. We can see arms shooting out of the house. Uh, if we read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes, we're pretty sure that's his mom because um, his dad is almost never home and is very is not very hands-on with Calvin. So it's probably his mom, but we don't know for sure because we can't see. But we we see the speech balloon that says, if you're going to tear around with a squirt, around with a squirt gun, do it outside. And Calvin launched in midair, flying out of the house. We can see the squirt gun just a little below him. And then we get this gigantic full page image of Spaceman Spiff's 
tiny little spaceship heading towards a gigantic orange and yellow and red planet. And the text says, A dreaded Nagon mothership fires a bolt of deadly destructo ray that sends a small red spacecraft reeling towards an unknown planet. Inside that spacecraft is our hero, the intrepid Spaceman Spiff, interplanetary explorer extraordinaire. And now we turn the page. Now, let's stop before we turn the page and just recognize that the very act of turning the page is a moment of closure especially in comics. Prose, not so much, because prose, they don't really plan where the page ends. Children's books, they do. But prose novels, it's just another page, and you turn in mid-sentence sometimes. But with a comic book, there's a break. And a really good comic artist tries very hard not to uh, cut mid-sentence, mid-concept, but rather to make every page... Uh, conceptually um, enclosed. Not like, you know, you have to get all the action in the entire book in on one page, but just that that you don't have to turn the page to go, "Uh uh-huh, unless they're wanting to surprise you, right? So we turn the page, and now we see uh, Calvin as Spaceman Spiff inside his spaceship. Our hero wrestles the controls, but the Altudatron refuses to respond. With ever-increasing velocity, Spiff roars to his dooms. We see an exterior shot of... Uh, shot, I'm talking about it like it's a film, of uh, an exterior, uh, this huge exterior frame. Again, with a great big uh, planetary vista. Um, this crazy desert planet. Spiff's only hope is to attempt a thousand mile an hour landing. Our hero lowers the landing gear and levels out. Will he make it? And now we have to turn the page again. And by this point, we're fully into Spiff's world. And Watterson drags us right back to Calvin. We see this, we turn the page, first panel, Calvin looking grumpily back at his house where he was just tossed from. Hmm. He says. So if we were to go back to the first page of that, we've got Calvin being launched out of the house. And then it takes us, I don't know, a minute, maybe less, a couple seconds, but certainly not the amount of time that it would have taken Calvin to actually hit the ground if his mother had actually thrown him out of the house. Comics are great because you can do stuff in them that if you did in real life, you'd be in serious trouble for. You chucked your kid out of the house the way that Calvin's mother chucks him here. Even in the 80s, that would not have been okay. Um, But you can do it in a comic, right? But Calvin has this whole imaginary space adventure in the, what, second or two? It would have taken him to hit the ground. And Watterson saves the joke for when we turn the page. So the organization of the comic panels sets the joke up. Then we're back. Next panel, we're back inside Calvin's imagination. So if we'd never read Calvin and Hobbes, at this point, I hope we'd be figuring it out. We might have to flip back through the pages to sort of figure out that Calvin being tossed through the air uh, triggers his imagination to him being Spaceman Spiff. If we don't get it yet, we're certainly going to get it soon. Yes, we see the imagination, the the interplanetary imagination of Calvin. The incredible Spaceman Spiff survives. We see his ship is ruined. It's crashed into the ground, dazed but unhurt. Our hero crawls from the smoldering wreckage. Next panel... Calvin in one of those great big vistas. He's very tiny. Spiff sets off across the planetary surface. An ominous shadowy figure flits across a nearby hilltop. An alien. We see Calvin hiding behind a rock. The frame is much closer in. He's got his gun out. He looks desperate. Our hero darts behind a rock and sets his zorcher on shake and bake. The alien approaches. 
And the very next panel, we see Susie, the girl that is one of his neighbors and, and is really one of Calvin's only real friends. Because um, Hobbs, the tiger, is not, he's just imaginary. Hi, Calvin. I see you. So you can stop hiding now. Are you playing cowboys or something? Can I play too? So there's Susie looking over the rock at Calvin, who's hiding. And at this point, I think we clue in. If we hadn't clued in by now, we go, oh, I see. This kid's pretending all this stuff. It's a loathsome batweb booger being. And so we see Susie in Calvin's imagination as this great big green three-eyed insectoid alien monster. A repulsive leech-like creature that attaches itself to you and never lets you alone until you're dead. He just doesn't like how clingy she is, that clingy girl. Greet, gork, goop, goop, says the alien. Our hero springs into action. We see Calvin jumping out from behind the rock. Kiss your protons goodbye, booger being. And, and he says, spiff fires repeatedly. But to his great surprise and horror, the zorch charge is absorbed by the booger being with no ill effect. Instead, the monster only becomes angry. And maybe we're too invested. In, in Calvin's imagination to remember what's actually going on here. But we turn the page, a little bit of closure, right? And the joke is right up there at the top of the page again. Why'd you do that, you mean little creep? I'm telling your mom. And there's Susie completely soaked. Uh-oh, says Calvin. Zounds, we're back to Spiff. And we're, we're, we're back to Spiff in a panel with no... Uh, no borders. The booger being is in alliance with the Nagon mothership that shot Spiff down in the first place. So now we can see how Calvin imagines his own mother. Our hero opts for a speedy getaway. And now we're back in the real world with Calvin's mother standing, looking angry in the foreground and Susie's pointing. We don't even need a speech balloon for Susie. We know exactly what's being said here. So even though she's clearly saying something, the comic doesn't represent that. This is this idea of what McLeod was talking about earlier with the idea of focus, that a comic can focus our attention, just like a film focuses our attention. Somebody's in a, a dance club and there's all this music in the background, but the only thing we can hear are the people who are talking to each other and they're often not even shouting. <laughs> and I'm always thinking like, you have to shout in most clubs I've ever been to. Because the music's just that loud, but a movie wants us to focus our attention. So the music gets moved into the background of the audio track and the, the dialogue comes to the center. Our attention is being focused. We can even think about the way in which writers use motifs to focus our attention on particular things. Again, when we talk about the map not being the territory, the map is focused on particular things. A map at McEwen shows you how to get to your classes. It's focused on making sure that you know how to get around McEwen. It's not focused on telling you uh, where the nearby comic shop is. It's not focused on telling you where the best place to go and get uh, sushi is. None of those things. It's focused on telling you where you go to inside the building. And so different maps, different, different foci, right? Um, so here the focus is on, on the gag, on the joke, right? At the Booger Beans distress signal, a gigantic Nagon materializes on the planet's surface. Calvin running around the corner of the house. Next panel is a full page panel with tiny little Calvin running from great big giant, uh, uh, giant, gigantic Nagon, which is his mother. If we're, 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 we're catching on by this point, we're like, that is definitely his mom with a ground shaking lunge. The Nagon is after spaceman spiff. And we turn the page. Our hero leaps into a crevice. Knowing his Zorcher would be useless against the behemoth spiff arms, the demiso bomb he keeps in his belt for just such an emergency. And if our eye jumps across the page, and this is the difference, by the way, we talk about differences between forms of media. 
What's the difference between a book and a movie? Our eye can wander around a book's page and we are almost never surprised in the way that a movie can surprise us. Movies and audiobooks, as it turns out, can surprise us like that because our eye can't wander around the page. But a movie can give us a jump scare. A movie can give us a sight gag that happens suddenly. And comics can do it too, to some degree. Watterson's already done it twice. It's almost as if, because I mean, let's face it, he could. He could have stretched this out for another thing so that we turn the page and there'd be the result of the joke. But he doesn't do this in the, this particular case. He allows us to see what's coming. Calvin chucking a water balloon at his mom. And so we may already be laughing while we're still taking a look at uh, Spaceman Spiff yelling, the Nagon rounds the corner, Spiff heaves the bomb, and the bomb flying through the air towards this gigantic alien thing before we see the next panel at the top of the next page, which is Calvin throwing the water balloon. Ha ha, death to Nagons. Calvin, don't you dare throw the closure. We get a leap in the narrative here. We never see the water balloon hit the mother. Comics can play with time in that way, from panel to panel. Could be a stretch of seconds, could be instantaneous, it's the very next moment, could be a year later. Comics can do that, they can jump like that. Films do too, books do too. They all do it in different ways, playing with time. And it's one of the ways that we can recognize that these are representations and not reality. In reality, we have to watch every tedious second of, say, I don't know, a lecture on comic book. But if this was rendered as a comic, it was rendered as prose, if it was rendered as a, as a film with editing, you could cut out some of those things. The monster is only stunned, his mother's soaking wet. We don't see the balloon hit, we just go straight to her soaked. I think that's great because it's just as funny this way. We see her skidding in there and saying, Calvin, don't you throw that? And then she's totally soaked and Calvin's already trying to fill another one while he's looking over his shoulder. The monster is only stunned. Spiff quickly tries to arm another bomb. It's too late. And we get another picture of Spaceman Spiff as he's being lifted in a gigantic hand. He's been captured. Oh no, he's been captured by the gigantic Nagon. The Nagon has him. What will happen now? <gasps> well, we would have to turn the page to find out. So we've got the gutter that creates that moment of what happens next, closure. But each page does too. Each page creates a moment of we try to extrapolate what will happen next. We do it while we read books. We do it while we watch movies. We try to figure out what happens next. It's why spoilers are such a big deal, even though uh, psychological studies have been done that show that spoilers don't really much. Now time leaps forward the length of a shower, it seems. Because we've got the father coming in. He's hanging up his jacket in the closet. He says, hi, honey, I'm home. Boy, what a day at the off. Oh, what's with the towels? And we get the next panel where he's looking at his wife or don't I want to know? And she's got a towel wrapped around her and she's got a towel wrapped around her head. You can tell she's been in the shower. Your son is in his room waiting for you to have a talk with him. And the last panel we get is of Calvin with his, he's wringing his hands. He's got this like, nefarious look on his face in the smelly gloomy dungeon spaceman spiff prepares a cunning trap for the approaching nagon king soon our fearless hero will be free again and he's got the old bucket on the door trick when his dad walks in he's going to get a bucket of water on the head and we know that spaceman spiff will run out and the adventure will continue but this is this is just this is like a a uh, crash course in how to read comics so that when we look at The Walking Dead in an upcoming lecture, you have a better sense of, of what to expect there. 
All right. I want to finish up today with I Prefer You with a Crown, uh, blending over to the starship. We've taken a look at this idea of intertextuality with comic books. Uh, and I just wanted to remind us that what we're looking at with Spaceman Spiff is a intertextual reference, not only to comic books, but to science fiction in general. But that the theme statement of Station Eleven, Survival is Insufficient, is an intertextual reference to Star Trek, Star Trek Voyager in particular. And we get this conversation in the section of Station Eleven called the Starship, where they talk about, like, is it seemly for a Shakespeare troupe to, uh, you know, have a reference to, you know, a, a trashy TV series like Star Trek written on our uh, on our caravan? And what I love about this is that it is not only an intertextual reference to science fiction, an intertextual reference to Star Trek, but that it's also then an intertextual reference to low art. And even though Mandel's characters, some of them anyway, don't like that it's a Star Trek reference, the book is positive about that. I mean, su survival is insufficient is one of the, it is the major theme of the book. And the inclusion of Star Trek Voyager as motif is supporting the idea that this is the theme of this book. So it doesn't matter so much that one character or another doesn't like that, that the, the reference survival is insufficient comes from Star Trek. It matters that the book reiterates that idea repeatedly. So it's not just that we get survival is insufficient written on the caravan for the traveling symphony, but that we return to it a number of times. Now the starship is a difficult section of the book to parse because it's sort of three narratives, maybe three and a half. We've got Kirsten in the traveling symphony, more of their adventures. We've got Arthur's Dear V letters where he wrote home to say what was going on with him. So a little bit more of Arthur's story, but it's done in what we call an epistolary narrative, which is narrative generated through letters usually. Could be done, I guess, in, in today's day and age as uh, social media. Clark and these iPhone zombies. And there's a reference in the Clark section of the starship to the idea that survival is insufficient. And I use it as a way to, I want to use it anyway, as a way to encourage you to be watching out for moments where survival is insufficient beyond Kirsten and the Traveling Symphony. Because Kirsten and the Traveling Symphony, we get survival as a, as a theme. Survival being insufficient, maybe less so, but mm, we might come to the conclusion that that theme is only for that strain of the book. It's only for the parts that Kirsten focalizes. Survival is insufficient is just for the post-apocalyptic uh, sections of the text. Absolutely not, because check this out. Clark does these reviews of corporate um, leaders and corporate workers and sees whether or not they, you know, how they could improve or do they need to be fired, etc. And he's interviewing this person who says, because I think people like him, referring to someone that she works with and someone that Clark is reviewing. Uh, Clark was one of uh, Arthur's best friends. Because I think people like him, she says, think work is supposed to be drudgery punctuated by very occasional moments of happiness. But when I say happiness, I mostly mean distraction. And I want that to point back into the last section of the book, uh, the section called I Prefer, Prefer You with a Crown. There are a number of references in that section of the book where survival is insufficient 
rears its head. That we get the repetition of images, motifs, through dialogue, through character musings that show us that it's not enough to just live. There's got to be more. Okay, so I just want us to be thinking about that as we move between I prefer you with a crown into the starship and the starship sort of as this liminal space. It's why I took the majority of today to talk about Calvin and Hobbes before we move into the next section of Station 11. So next time, we'll be taking a look at the section of Station 11 titled Toronto. We get to return to Jeevan and his brother. Uh, but we'll also be taking a look, now that we've had our crash course in how to read comics, uh, we can take a look at uh, The Walking Dead, the comic book, next time on Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs>